Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders who want to help their companies execute faster. As always, we're virtual. I'm at home in Bucks in the sunshine and in a change from the usual deepest, darkest Oxfordshire, Vicky is somewhere in deepest, darkest United States. Vicky, whereabouts are you? I am in Miami and I have to admit it feels like I've come home. I hadn't realised how much I'd missed it. And actually, I'd, I just did a quick post on LinkedIn to say to all my friends this side of the pond. And it's 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 felt like a reunion. It's just been absolutely amazing. It's uh, I feel very lucky to be here and I'm really looking forward to with the team that I'm working with tomorrow. Well, enjoy your holiday. <laughs> <laughs> very funny. No holiday. So you're actually in probably closer to the time zone of our guest than I am, aren't you? Um, and perhaps you can introduce them for us. Oh, I'd love to. So we have with us today Denise Sangster, who is CEO of Global Touch. And Denise is also recognised as in the top 10 most influential global women in tech, which is a phenomenal thing to be recognised for, Denise. So it's a That's real awesome. privilege to have you with us today. Where are you Thank on that you. list, Vicky? Very funny. Number one. She's number one, <laughs> Sam. And great to be with both of you today. <laughs> Thanks, Denise. Really good. Wow. I mean, that's a that's a, a lofty guest to have on our on show today. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, would you mind giving us a little bit of your career history, how you got to where you are, please? Absolutely. Um, I started... Um, and back in university days, I started as a math major and I decided I did not want to go into math and I was uh, weaned or pushed towards computer science and business. And after college, I ended up working for a database startup company, which became SQL Server at Microsoft. Um, and from there, after the company I was with was acquired by Microsoft, I ended up starting a consulting company helping to work primarily for technology partners that were located in Europe or in other parts of the world, um, helping them with their product strategies and portfolios and trying to get them um, to be more competitive and bring in more innovation to their customers. And I did that for a number of years and ended up building a at the time, the largest IT multi-country conference in Europe called EuroChannels, which we sold to another company back in 2001. Um, but that was really fun to build that and to have pan-European conversations when um, the borders were going down and we were t working towards a unified um, Europe. And it was it was just a really exciting time. So I sold that business. I continued doing management consulting, uh, which I'm doing today. And we are really focused on leading with strategy that's based on data and, and storytelling around the data. Fantastic. Sounds good. So would you give us a bit more uh, detail about Global Touch? What, what is it you guys do specifically in your expertise around partner go-to-market, please? So we, we work with companies that want to scale fast and efficiently. And that means we work with partners. And partners can be a number of different things from classic resale partners to um, global GSIs to um, working on embedded technologies. And we work across all of that. We help companies understand um, how to lead with data, to harness that data, and to make really forward-thinking programs and um, enablement that, that drives partners to more efficient paths towards profitability and uh, mutual revenue. 
You know, it's, it's really interesting that you say that you're focused on data, Denise, because my background, as, as you know, is, is on the partner side of tech. And even now with clients that we're working with, partners always feel like, or the partner team inside a tech company feels like the underdog. It feels like they're not the ones that are getting the recognition versus the guys who are the enterprise sales guys that are bringing in the big, you know, multi-million dollar deals. And yet we know how profitable it is to go to market, as you say, and scale through partners. So the fact that you have the data to demonstrate this, gosh, that's so valuable because it felt like that was really missing. It felt like it was more gut feel than proof. You know, I, Vicky, I think you've hit on the the dirty secret of the IT industry, which is partners bring in the bulk of revenue for most IT companies, but yet the biggest accolades go to the direct sales team. And yeah. and I think I Amen think this to that. Comes, I think this comes down to one word, and that's about predictability. But yes. the direct sales teams, there they can better predict revenue than the mass of partners. And because, because IT companies are not um, understanding the deep economics of how partners make money with their products, and they, they miss the opportunity to build a more accurate, predictable um, market for revenue. And that's really, that's really a lost opportunity. And that, that is really a, a reflection of the IT industry is still utilizing what worked 15 years ago and not what's working today. That's really fascinating that you say that, particularly with the, the move to, to the SaaS way of, of go-to-market, which I'm sure we're going to get dig into. Because I remember I was running Citrix's global SMB business. And firstly, interestingly, on predictability, my forecasting was the most accurate in the business because SMB was so predictable and because it was a run rate business. I could predict at the beginning of the quarter of what we were going to do at the end of the quarter. Yeah, it's, um, it's modeling rather than forecasting almost, isn't it? it? It was really, really fascinating. But what I was going to say was the passion that kept me in that role was I was so worried what was going to be the future of partners when all these vendors moved to a subscription model. Where was their role going to be? So I'd love to get your, your thoughts around that. And Sam, I'm sure he... Yeah, <laughs> well, so I was just thinking into about that this, too. So I joined Softcat in 1998, and you know this was clearly pre most of the SaaS stuff. But there was this thing around at the time called the ASP or Application oh, yeah. Service that Provider, was born with Citrix. and and they were absolutely going to kill resellers, and we were going to be dead, and we weren't. And then eventually, <laughs> it sort of got rebranded as SaaS, and we were going to be dead, and then we weren't. So Denise, I'm really interested in your view. Yeah, I don't. I don't think SaaS. I don't think SaaS is a partner killer. If anything, it's it's actually good news for partners. I mean, partners partners make the bulk of their profit on services, sure. and SaaS SaaS introduces as uh, this will sound counterintuitive, but it does introduce a new set of complexity to an organization, and that's where partners do really well. So where there's complexity, there's margin. Yeah. And that's and partners are there to help. And when I look at SaaS, I see all the value add through consultancy, through app development, and telemetry that partners can um, deliver to the table. And 
you know, particularly around how they engage with a company. So are they delivering against the customer's business objectives? A SaaS app can't do that, but a partner can and integrating that SaaS app, um, driving accelerated adoption, because once you get it adopted, um, then you can expand it and utilize it and help gain more capability out of it. And I think the, the third point there is that helping customers realize value as soon as possible. That's what partners do. That's not what's done internally. That's what partners help do. And without partners, um, a lot of this technology would not come to life or we'd have a lot of shelfware which we do have a lot of shelfware. And when we have a lot of shelfware, that's because partners, I believe, have not been actively engaged and there hasn't been a commitment to uh, the customer to get it adopted and um, to really use it to achieve their business outcomes. I think that makes sense because vendors do have a tendency to bundle stuff. So the, the customer is, the end user customer is under pressure to take a suite of things when they only wanted one or two of them. And then, yeah, the challenge is absolutely getting them to use the other stuff so that they get value out of it and, importantly, see the value at renewal and potentially see their way to taking more of the suite of products in the future. There are partners around the world, and there's one or two in the UK that I think is absolutely best of class in the entire world, absolutely best of class, of driving telemetry into the customer suite, into the customer site, in order to drive um, an acceleration of IT investments because they can show how this technology has really connected into their MDs or their CEO's priorities. And being able to show that and demonstrate that and then show the the bottom line benefits of how that contributed is just game-changing. And that's what partners do very, very well. And some of those partners, again, that do that best are located in Europe. Do you see a difference in the market between the US and the UK or the US and Europe in terms of maturity of partner, where you know where they are with this stuff, or is it just different? Um, I think there there are a number of differences, but the biggest divide has always been about services. So as the IT industry really got going in the PC generation in the 1990s, um, partners were left to themselves to provide support and provide any kinds of capabilities to customers. I mean, there was a little bit done, but it was done at a fraction of the rate um, that it was done in the United States. In the United States, partners didn't really have to focus on services. And those that did start focusing on services were the early leaders in terms of profit, but um, even today, some of the bigger partners still don't have the deep bench skills that you see as commonplace um, in their uh, EMEA rivals. Interesting. Do you see that changing over time? No. Or is, is services just embedded in the vendor side of things? Then? I think, I, well, I, I, so what will change in the future is that vendors are doing more to support their partners in, in Europe than they used to do or in EMEA. Um, and those can be done through a lot of call center technology, which is anywhere in the world, or through sun-up services. So wherever the sun is up, somebody is answering the phone. Um, but the American partners, um, they're, not, they're not as um, aggressive with services across, across the market as you find in yeah. EMEA. Now, there are American partners, if they listen to this, they would be, they would be um, really offended by that and angry by that. But, th- but it's true. 
there Generally, there are yeah. there there are good American partners that provide world class capabilities, but it's not everywhere in America. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I would totally agree with that from my experience of from running some best practices in Europe and then taking it to the global channel. Just how different the the partners were in the main in in the US. It's a much yeah. more transactional business, or it feels that way. And it still is today. And, you know, Europeans as a whole, and again, this is a gross generalization, but you're, you're much more relationship driven than Americans are. And I think that, you know, that is reflected in how they've engaged in business. So I can remember one of the largest partners in Germany um, when talking with their executives back in the late 90s, you know, they they expected their account teams to know everything about every person they were engaged with, their birth dates, their, you know, their wives' names, their kids' names, where they were in their education. They wanted them to know all of those details because they felt that that was part of building that business relationship. And, and that's crossing that thin line in EMEA of, of knowing the personal side with the business side. And there had been a very thick line before, but they wanted them to cross that to try and build those deeper relationships. And, you know, we see some of that in the United States as well, or we, we see quite a bit of it, but it's a different kind of relationship. Really interesting. Really interesting. I think, I wonder if we maybe fell victim to some of that when trying to push the European agenda, Vicky. Um, well, sure. maybe we didn't we didn't realize how why the services element was so important to the vendors stateside because it maybe was different. Why, the different yeah, why agenda. they didn't realize how important it was to to resellers, service providers, solutions providers, Europe side. Very interesting. I think so I think so, but also what I felt um, certainly at my time at VMware, which is you know it's a while back now, but it felt like actually corporate was really listening to us because we were driving new ways of, of working and the partnership. I mean, we've had Lamia Megdish on, on the podcast. She really understood how she needed to build programs that started in Europe and then went back to the US versus the other way around, which mm-hmm. was quite, quite refreshing. So Denise, your company has, has just published a new survey, am I right? We did. It's called um, the Partner Outlook Survey, and it just went live on 16 May. Oh, brilliant. Very, very very exciting. So very fresh. Without wanting to give the game away, perhaps you could give us a bit of an insight as to what you you discovered, and maybe we can direct people in the show notes to go and have a look at it. Well, I, I, I think the good news is that partners are very bullish around the world about um, the calendar year 2022. Um, they, in, you know, there's a number of challenges that they have identified, such as an inverted book to bill ratio. So because of supply chain shortages, they have, they can't, they can't bill for the product and they can't deliver the services. So for some, in some markets, the services are quite, um, a multiplier on top of the amount of revenue that you, you gain on the product. So that book to bill ratio is really um, important to follow because that tells us something. In some in some cases, it's two to three to four to five to ten times higher than it was a year ago, or even higher than that. So there are millions and millions of dollars 
that have not been billed by partners and they can't deliver the services around it. So their benches are underutilized right now. That doesn't mean they don't have things to do, but those, those rich services that to really drive the full value of that technology can't be delivered until the products are ready. And that's an industry-wide problem. Um, also, um, as we're moving into some inflationary, possibly tipping into recession, um, product prices are going up. Not unexpected, and customers understand that, but we're seeing um, an increasing number of price hikes. So not just one price hike, but two and three and four over a year's period of time. And that's a lot for partners to adjust to because some of their deals are multi-year deals. And that means that someone's going to have to eat that cost. And that's a challenge. That's a real challenge. And, you know, especially when you're dealing with the public sector um, in EMEA, many of those contracts are five-year fixed contracts, five-year price fixed. So um, having that go up is challenging. Um, we're also seeing some challenges with credit lines. So as uh, partners are getting more into recurring revenue, uh, they're being asked to absorb the liability risk of the customer. And um, many of the financing companies or the, or the uh, banks are saying that we're going to take 100% of that liability and not, not parse it by year, but just give 100%, keep it on for the entire time of that, of that contract. And that's creating some um, supply or some credit line constraints for partners. Um, and I think two other um, issues is that we are seeing some economic insecurities, uh, one being geographic differences in terms of slowdown or potential recession. And the other is the impact of the Russian and Ukrainian war, where we're seeing um, a bigger impact in EMEA, which I guess is not unsurprising but to many of the partners that are nearer to where the war is taking place, they're seeing that as a multiplier um, effect and really causing some challenges for them. Um, the last one is that um, there's never been a time in the world where um, cybersecurity was more important than now. And um, there just is simply not enough talent to address all of the security issues and plus um, to fend off what's happening outside the United States and some of these um, uh, centers that are determined to hack and to create chaos. And this is an opportunity for partners. It's a huge opportunity, but it's also a risk. So those are kind of the highlights of it. Um, as Vicki, as you mentioned, Vicki, we, um, we segmented the data by three core geographies, US and Canada, um, EMEA, and APAC. And there are some differences between all of those markets. And um, that's the great thing about doing global work that I like is that you get to see the cultural effect, you get to see the economic and really what's happening geopolitically in those regions manifest more in by slicing that data that way. You know, that's really fascinating that you just say that, because I think the aha moment that I've just had is you actually look at the at three separate markets, whereas the vast majority of vendors, in fact, I don't think I know a vendor, you're probably going to tell me differently, a partner program is a global partner program. It doesn't vary yeah. particularly by region. Presumably only those vendors that work with Global Touch see it as three separate markets. <laughs> <laughs> got, to, got to get a shameless plug-in for you, Denise, haven't I? <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. My pleasure. Lovely. I would disagree with you on this way, Vicky. They, they see the words... 
they don't understand the nuances of what you no. said. Bigger challenge to that is that there has been no real innovation in partner programs per se. I mean, there's there's new things, there's new kinds of incentives and things like that, but but the construct of that is still very much the way it was 15 years ago. And it needs to be blown up and, and rethought. And that's really a fundamental challenge that I see today. And it makes the geographic, the lack of recognition of the geographic needs even more critical. Yeah. But, you know, I think you have to break it down just, just like you have to break Europe apart. Europe doesn't act the same. And you have Thank to break you. these partner these partner programs down the same way. There are um, there are programs. So by the nature of the beast, because services is more into the DNA of um, of Europe partners, not EMEA partners, but Europe partners. And even within Europe, there there are there are um, markets that are much better at services than other markets. Yes. So. You know, it's not a one size fits all. And I think that's the challenge that when you're working globally, you know, I think I think what we really want to be looking at is our what are the near term and the longer term issues that may impact partner revenue um, and and how that will impact the IT companies. So understanding that gives you a, a better advantage of where the market is going because they represent, depending on the company, it can be 95% or more of the total revenue can be coming from partners. And yet again, as you said earlier, Vicki, it's yeah. the direct sales guys that get all the accolades, but the partner yeah. team that is really delivering the bulk of this um, doesn't, doesn't realize that. But you know, the, the things that really interest me are, are trying to gain the, insights into the pre-trends, what's shaping the industry, um, what's happening with partners, how is go-to-market transformation um, progressing, how are the revenue models changing, um, particularly in a consumption and multi-cloud emerging era. And those are the things that I really am fascinated by. And I like, um, by the nature of the business that I've done for the last 30 years, I like comparing and contrasting the three core regions of the world to each other. Um, the APAC people don't like the fact that they're lumped together with A and Z and other markets again. and very yeah. different again. And A and Z in many yeah. ways, I mean, back to your VMware days, A and Z led, um, led the virtualization Yes. Um, effort for VMware. And that's yes. one of the reasons that ANZ became um, such an early adopter of cloud. So virtualization yeah. led to cloud and cloud is now leading to other things. Um, so those are kinds of things that I love to see in the market and like to track and pay attention to. Yeah. Do you publish this somewhere that people can go to? And can we put that yes. in the show notes? They, they can yeah. go to our website um, and they can download it or they can send us an email to... Um, partner outlook at globaltouch.com and we'll be happy to add them to our subscription list it's free so it's just a it's a great way to leverage what's happening in the field and to understand from those that are on the front lines and we want to share some of that knowledge that we have with the broader market so that's why we are, are doing this quarterly um this quarterly newsletter just to get our thoughts out there and to share them with the broader market Makes sense seeing this stuff in aggregate, but also in 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 local geo detail can only help, right? Yeah, it's not local enough. 
for most people, they want to know, tell me about what's <laughs> happening in France. And actually, I want to know what's happening in, in Bordeaux, not necessarily what's happening yeah. in Paris. But, <laughs> you know, but it's, it is, it, but it's, it's a start. It's a help. And maybe well, that's the where the consultancy that, gig comes in, right? Well, and I think, the, I think to Vicky's point, the fact that most companies don't think of what are the differentiations or what are the differences um, between the different markets at all times, this is at least gives them a head start to start thinking that way. Yeah. Um, something that we talked about in the prep call, Denise, um, that isn't in the, the notes here, was moving to this more consumption model and the impact of customer success. Um, you had some real, really insightful views around customer success. And as you know, customer success is, is a real focus for us. It's a real growing area for us, um, yes. Amplified. So can you share a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the two, I think what the customer success manager does and how telemetry is used is the is the crown jewels of getting into life cycle. Yeah. And without both of those, you can't even hope to be successful with life cycle. So what the CSM does and what they focus on is really a game changer to me. And when yeah. I look at, uh, when we go in and do deeper studies and evaluations of partner groups for a company, this is one of the core questions that we like to ask. As well as do you do you utilize telemetry with your customers? And we find those partners that are using telemetry, which is not just about the product telemetry, but it's also about the customer telemetry of how they're working. Those are the ones that end up having higher profit. Right. And they're getting more success and traction into life cycle because customers customers will engage with you if they know how they're doing. Of the course. problem is we don't as an industry tell them what the successes are. We just tell them what they should be getting, not actually what they got. Right. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Very interesting. Thank you. So can we change gear a little and talk about IT wondrous women, please, as we've got two on this call and I feel insignificant by comparison. (laughs) And, and Vicky, of course, is one of my favorites of all time. And I was thrilled when she agreed to participate in IT wondrous women. So IT Wonders Women is a blog series that we started coming up on two years, and it's about really focusing in and just spotlighting these amazing women in technology who are around the world. And our goal is to really feature these leaders that may not be well-known out of their country or may not be well-known around the world, but we want to give them a platform to be recognized and we're showcasing those who are actually IT leaders today or those that have roots in IT and maybe have gone into other businesses. Not only letting others see what they're doing, but letting those that are following us to stand on our shoulders. We've So far, we have um, profiled more than 160 fabulous women, which we call spotlights, and we should surpass 200 by the end of this year. Um, They're located in 16 countries um, and all are either serving in leadership roles as an executive and management and sales or marketing or partner organizations, technology, or as a thought leader or something else. And this is all about finding these, these people. And a lot of these women I have known for many years, like, like Vicki. And, you know, it's like, she's always impressed me as being one of those, you know, industry leaders, innovation, innovators, and ahead of market trends. And so showing who Vicky is 
And then having her answer the questions, we have four categories and everyone who participates answers the same 10 questions. There's no exceptions. Doesn't matter if you're a CEO or if you're a manager, everybody answers the same and they're divided into what we call fun facts, um, such as uh, what's the one thing your business colleagues don't know about you? And that one is hilarious. So we've had many, many different answers from people what their colleagues don't know about them. Uh, we have them tell us about their career, which are their top two experiences, um, and and who helped shape their journey, which we learned about Vicky's role with Mark Templeton at Citrix. And if you had that mentor, what did they do for you and who were they? And we'd like to link in those people as well. So there's a lot of different things, including, you know, if you could, uh, what's the one thing that you would tell yourself at an earlier age? Um, so I'd love these kinds of questions. And when I look at all of this together, I really think this is a, um, a collection of shortcuts that women have shared with us. What are the shortcuts that have made them successful? And we have a lot of men that read it and they find it really, really helpful. You know, it takes, it takes a lot of courage to answer questions like, what's the biggest thing you've learned? It, it does take courage to answer those kinds of questions. And I love the fact that people are taking the time and effort to do that and, We've seen an unintended consequence of this blog series, which is a number of women who have been featured have been headhunted to new jobs, really cool. which is really, really cool. Thank you for, for everything that you, you do. I'm really keen to know. So we talked at the beginning about you being recognized as one of the most influential women in, in tech. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and how that came about? So we got we got contacted by a magazine um, that was looking at women, and um, they they were looking at some of our clients, and their our clients recommended me as someone right. to participate. And you know, incredible honor, first of all, to have anyone call, but the fact that um, you know, client recommended this was astonishing. I mean, and you've got lovely. some pretty impressive clients, haven't you? So that's a uh... I feel very blessed. I mean, honestly, I work really, really hard. And um, that's one thing I really thank my father for is really trying to instill in me at an early age to do what I love to do. Um, Also believe in the product of what you're doing and really work hard to provide value to your clients and treat them as clients for life. And I really appreciate that. And that's, that's what we try and do every single day. And, and just because I don't have an active project with a client doesn't mean they're not a client. I still treat them like a client. Yeah. I, I think we have exactly the same principles at the Amplify Group. Exactly. I don't think we've spelt them out quite the same as that, but that, that, that is how much we care about our clients. They, they make us. I think that was the thing when I first met you, Vicky. that was what impressed me about you so much. We had a conversation in London at uh, one of the VMware EMEA packs, and you were talking about how, how do we add the right level of value to our partners so that we can get this business really going? And you were, really, you were asking all the right questions. Thank you. And knowing, mm-hmm. you know, knowing the questions is sometimes the hardest thing of all. But finding, you know, finding the answers is not as hard as knowing what the questions are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I'm absolutely working so deliberately to surround myself with people that, that can answer my questions. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's, there is no clear answer. 
And you need to create or intertwine with a number of different things. Well, we're just constantly learning. I think that's the thing. We, you know, and we really appreciate that our partners understand that we're, I say partners because we partner with our clients, that they are, we're learning with them. Every day is a school day. Yes. And and sometimes, and sometimes we may learn faster because we can look across different companies. It's funny you you mentioned in your um, IT Wonders Women thing, one of the questions that you asked is what would you tell your younger self? Um, because that is one of the questions we ask our guests on the podcast. So that's that the next one. I'm, yeah, we yeah. shamelessly did, oh, did, did we, did oh, we, we steal? Did. Oh, we I, did. Assumed, I assumed Denise yes. had stolen it from us. Um, <laughs> yes. So Denise, in that case, I'm going to shamelessly throw that one at you. Okay. Um, you know, there's probably five things that stuck with me, but um, I, I, will, I will preface this by saying I was, I, was, I was really fortunate. As a child, I was involved in athletics. So um, I had this amazing swimming coach from the time I was five years old who happened to be a three-medal 1948 Olympic uh, medalist named Ann Curtis Cuneo um, at the London Games in 48 in swimming. And King George actually came to watch her compete. And she, is, she was just absolutely dominant in the pool. She only competed in three events because that's all she was allowed to compete in at the time. It was thought to be too, um, too unsafe for women to compete in more than three events. So she competed in the maximum. And King George was so impressed with her two gold medal wins and her silver that he invited her to tea with the princesses at Buckingham Palace. And you can actually Google that and see pictures of her coming out of Buckingham Palace in her Team USA gear. But Ann Curtis um, is somebody that influenced me. And sadly, she died the week before the, the 2012 Olympics in London. And I happened to be at the 2012 Olympics and I was at the swimming venue and I could just feel her presence there um, before the game. So she, she used to tell us, and this is something that I have used in business my entire career, which is to train like you've never won and compete like you've never lost. And I love that train like you've never won and compete like you've never lost. And that stuck with me my entire life. And as I got to know, Anne as an adult, um, you know, long years later, you know, I could see how that phrase, you know, uh, played into my business world. So what I would tell myself if there were, um, if I if I could go back, I would probably tell myself five things, not just one thing, but five things. Which is the first one is kind of trite, which is dress dress for the job that you want or the part that you want, which is more important if you're in person than if you're on video yeah. or remote. This is why I've always dressed. This is why I've always dressed like a rock star. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and you and you wear it well, Sam. You wear it well. Um, no, second, I'm not giving up hope yet. <laughs> Yes, there you go. The second is about um, networking, which is um, learning to be an impactful networker. And, and, and I would say that I'm a natural networker and I've had to learn how to be an impactful networker. And I learned, I learned that from my father and from meeting his friends and moving on because um, your network is only as good as the value that you can bring to that network and share with that network. And um, LinkedIn has provided that seismic game, game changer for all of us that it's how I found Vicky again. Um, and those are, those are things that um, make it a lot easier to stay in contact. Um, the third thing is about failure. And 
this is a hard one for all of us. And it's one that I think many individuals really fear is failure. And failure is a natural part of growth and expansion. I don't know any executive that hasn't failed miserably more than once or twice. And the ones that go on and really do well are the ones that pick it apart and really understand what were those, what were those slight shifts in strategy or in direction that led to challenges. And that's really important because that's where you can learn to up your game. And, and I love this quote by this American basketball star, Michael Jordan, that he'd missed more than 9,000 shots in his career. And he had lost more than 300 games because when he was given the ball at the last minute to shoot that final hoop, he missed. And he, he says very passionately that he's failed over and over and over again. And, you know, that's such a great reminder for us that we have to try things, we have to take risks, but we have to learn from them and move on. And I think two more that I would say um, to my younger self is mentoring, is latch on to mentors, but also remember that at some point you're going to be the mentor. I've been very lucky. I didn't have one mentor. Probably my father was my biggest mentor, but I didn't have just one mentor. I had lots of different people around the world that were mentoring me about lots of different things. And um, it, it's, you're really lucky. And the final one I would say is always be prepared. Preparation. That's the distinguishing thing that I don't think young people um, really appreciate. And I know at a young age, um, that was something that, Whenever I went to a meeting, I was really, I was overprepared. I would rather work with a junior person that is prepared than to work with someone with five to 10 year, years of experience that's not well prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good. So as we draw to a close, we always ask our um, guests on the podcast, what will be your three key takeaways for our listeners? We've covered an awful lot of ground. So there's going to be some some serious dredging to find out what you what are your key nuggets for our, for our listeners, but let's go for it. Well, assuming that I understand the question correctly, I would say be curious. That would be number one. And that's with learning, that's with reading, that's with listening. Think beyond your, your local market. Think, I mean, thinking global is really trite. And because of supply chain shortages today, thinking globally is not necessarily in vogue. But Reading magazines from other markets, finding different topics to read about, I think is really crucial. And just being curious what's going on and how culture changes business and how business changes culture, understanding those dynamics, really, really important. The second is, I would say, to focus on what you can give back. It's not what you can take, but what you can give back. And whether you're a mentor or you're doing something for the industry like IT Wonders Women um, or something else, being a thought leader or writing or speaking, just give back. It's really important. Go to school and teach kids about business and, the, and about technology. Mentor athletes who are trying to move on from an athletic world or Olympians into something else. There's so many things that you can do. And I think if you can just, just start to take baby steps, it'll be very clear. Um, the other one is I would say form lifelong partnerships and clients for life. And I think that's something that 
Very few do. And um, I try to cheer on their successes. So when I see somebody okay. post that I know, I always try and cheer them on because I think yes. it's just such an I amazing thing to see successes. And probably I I would add a bonus one on this question of the key takeaways is I I am a, I am a consultant. I'm paid to consult. And what my clients tell me is that the most important thing I do for them is to tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And that can create a lot of conflict that can create challenges that can create a lot of strife, but I, I believe that's my most important job is to tell them what they need to hear. You know, I had, um, when, when we first set up Amplified Group, I went out to dinner with Paul Weefels from the Chasm Group. And Paul said, you go through a journey with a client, which is, you know, they love you to start with. And then you get into the real nitty gritty with them. And they, you have to tell them all the things that they don't want to hear. So be really prepared for that. And then they'll thank you for it eventually. Yeah. Be prepared to go through that. I was referred to it as being allowed to call the baby ugly. Yeah. Because you weren't responsible for producing it. Not, not, if, the, not, <laughs> if, hor- the, not if the baby's looking in the mirror. Yeah, pretty horrible phrase, but... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, you know, and I think, I think just to play on that, one, one final thing, if we are headed towards a recession, and I think we are in the United States, maybe in the UK, and... Yeah. maybe in Western Europe. I, I, it's hard to know right now, but, you know, in a recession, um, growth, become, growth may become scarce. And so much of our business is focused on growth. So how do we achieve success if growth is gone temporarily? And I think that's really one of the questions. So what, what I, what, one of the one of the things that we're doing with Partner Outlook is that we're trying to break apart the goal of growth and um, build stepping stones to success. And in a recession, customers want three things if we're headed into that. Number one is they want to save money. Number two, they want to reduce risk. And the third one is they want to make revenue more predictable. So what you can do in each of those buckets becomes crucial if you start talking about that now as we move towards, if we are moving into a recessionary period, that becomes sort of a red folder conversation. And a red folder is that emergency uh, plan that you've got prepared and, and how to move forward. But understanding that I think is really critical. So I think we're in such a, an amazing market. It's so dynamic. There's so many wonderful people like you two um, that I've met over the years. And it's just, it's really a pleasure to be with you here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you to say so. We don't usually get compliments from our guests, we do we, Ricky? We don't, no. <laughs> what a pleasure. So we've only got one last question. I appreciate we, we've uh, racked up the time on this one. Your last question, Denise, is would you be so kind as to recommend a book for our listeners, please? Oh, there's one book I love. Um, it's called um, How Women Rise. It's jointly written by Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall wrote a book called uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. So he's written two fabulous books, but I love How Women Rise. And it's not that I'm a feminist, but I think it's important for women to understand that they are different. They think different. They're wired different. And their uh, women face different kinds of roadblocks from men 
around the world. So women have some advantages in America versus other parts of the world. In the UK, you have some advantages versus other parts of the world. But women suffer from gender bias. There are some difficulties in leadership uh, because of it. And when women approach the top companies, they often run into to roadblocks because they bring their, their background and, and their um, own strengths to bear. But this book really talks about identifying what these self-defeating behaviors are that, that can hold you back. And I think that's, it's a great read for all women um, and even for men to understand that men that manage women or work with women, it's especially if you're a manager, that's a really great thing to look at it. And then, and in the end, um, the most powerful thing that any person can do in their career is change what they can control. And that's really what this book is all about, is helping you rise and understanding those things that may be limiting you that you do have control over. So I, I love this book because of that. Fantastic. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. Thank you. Wow, we've covered some ground today, haven't we? We really like, have. Denise, I feel like we've taken up far more of your valuable time, but that was absolutely magnificent. Thank you. We really appreciate it. So it just remains for me to say, thanks for listening to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group. As always, your comments and your subscriptions are gratefully received.